Hello and welcome to Think Like a Game Designer. I'm your host, Justin Gary. In this podcast, I'll be having conversations with brilliant game designers from across the industry with a goal of finding universal principles that anyone can apply in their creative life. You can find episodes and more at thinklikeagamedesigner.com. Today's episode, I speak with Phil Walker-Harding. Phil is a really great example of a game design success story. He really put in the work and did the grind to be able to publish his own games, bring them to conventions, find more professional publishers, eventually build those relationships, get his games to market, and really reach a level of success that most people aspire to be able to get to. And he does it through not just the hard work and the iteration loops, which you've heard over and over again from guests of this podcast, and I probably beat it to death myself enough, but also to really drive down the idea of elegance or what he calls accessibility, right? One of the things he talks about is accessibility at all costs. And you can see the value of that elegance and design coming through in some of his more popular games like Sushi Go and Gizmos, which are really cool examples of distilling really fundamental principles like drafting and engine building as these core mechanics and thinking, okay, how do I make this as accessible as possible? How do I strip away all the stuff that gets in the way? And we dig into all of this in this episode. There's tons of great lessons for you, whether you're thinking about publishing your own game, whether you just want to get started as a designer, or that you just want to really deconstruct some of these great, very popular games that are uh, really just master classes in what to do to make great games and how to build designs that can be accessible to a large audience, but still have that depth of play that a core group can continue to play it over and over and over again. So without further ado, I will let Phil speak for himself and present to you, Phil Walker Harding. Hello and welcome. I am here with Philip Walker Harding. Philip, it's wonderful to get to speak with you. Thanks for having me on. Really nice to be here. Yeah. So, you know, this was uh, actually great um, because I regularly use your games as examples of uh, really just great, elegant distillations of core mechanical principles. And I find uh, that uh, it's always a great much more challenges tons of people can take a mechanic like drafting with sushi go uh or you know the kind of engine building uh from from gizmos and build something that's very complex and has a lot of extra bells and whistles to shine off but very few people who can really distill it down to something that that feels good and naturally has a good theme mechanic connection that just kind of flows and so i'm 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 a big fan i can't wait to dive into those those projects specifically oh thank you but uh, the way I usually like to start, because for a lot of people who are fans of your games and love the idea of playing, um, you know, it can seem kind of, you know, uh, daunting and mysterious to kind of how you get started and how you get into things. And so I'd love to just kind of start with your your origin story. Tell tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of how you got into game designing. And we'll I'll, I'll, I'll pepper you with the questions along the way to <laughs> pull out some universal principles as I can. Sure thing. Uh, well, so grew up in Australia where I still live. Um we had a lot of the mass market American games here. So when I was young, I played most of the same board games uh, American kids would have played. Um, but a few a few games that really struck me growing up were uh, a couple of Ravensburger games in the 80s made it over here. Uh, so Scotland Yard, um, The Amazing Labyrinth, 
And even when I was really young, both of those, I was like, this is different. Like, <laughs> and <laughs> I knew that I knew they were from somewhere else. Cause, um, Scotland Yard, the printing we had, had a, the spill to spill the Ciaris logo on it, but it said Europe's award-winning game or something like that. And I was like, what is this magical place where they award, <laughs> award board games? So I think I had this sense that there was something different about, about them. Um, but then like a lot of people m- much more got into video games sort of as an adolescent and into teenagerdom and sort of forgot about board games in a way. Um, but then sort of in university discovered Settlers of Catan, Carcassonne, uh, all the, the great German games that were coming over. And, uh, and that feeling came back of like, oh, there's something different about these games. Um, and instantly just dove in and sort of instantly dove into to, um, game design as well because as a kid I'd always fiddled around with, well, if I, if I did anything as a kid, I tried to make my own version of it. You know, I was one of those uh, kids. And um, so I'd always played around with making my own board games as a very young child and getting older. So, yeah, when I got back into games, it was just a natural thing and it became this little hobby straight away that I was tinkering with my own designs as well. So when you're you're tinkering with your own design, so we a lot of us have that experience as a, as a kid. We're playing and, you know, we make our own games, we make our own rules what your process when you're coming back to this you're you're doing your own paper prototypes you're taking games you like and modifying them what is you know what kind of what do you remember from those periods about your process that that kind of starts starts you down this path of making things more professionally well one of the first things i played when i got back into modern games was lost cities by reiner knizia Mm -hmm. and totally loved it um loved everything about it was so amazed how much gameplay came out of so few things. But I was like, why is this only for two players? I want to play this with more. So one of the first things I did was try and make a three to four player kind of lost cities. And um, just with paper and markers. And I thought, you know, it would be relatively easy to figure out, but I realized straight away how important it is in that game design that, it is a two-player game, you know, that, that is, that is right. the DNA of the game. So that was like, oh, wow, there's, there's you know, a lot going on even in this very simple design. So then, yeah, I just started kind of coming up with my own little ideas, just very simple prototypes, experimenting. I think, like, when every designer starts, you've kind of, you've got to get out of your system a few things. Like, there's just things we default too, for some reason, probably because of our childhood experiences, but, you know, take that cards and roll and move and all these things that are in your head from your childhood, you know, at some point, I'm sure I tried a whole lot of bad ideas that weren't working and, um, put my friends through a few really bad play tests, uh, <laughs> but slowly you fig- I just figured out, I guess my own style, um, and what people were responding to, but it was kind of just was- at the start, just throwing everything at the wall. I think. Yeah. So, so couple, couple, uh, things to highlight, right? One, I, I think it's just a phenomenal way to get started, right? Just take a game you love and try to change something about it, right? Take something that you want to see different, something you want to see and go through that experiment. And often you end up realizing, oh, well, this doesn't work for this reason or that reason, but it's a great way to get started or even to create real things, right? I mean, my, I created dissension by saying, oh, I really like Dominion, but man, I wish these cards would change all the time. So I started just shuffling up a Dominion deck and dealing out cards and was like, well, this doesn't work for a variety of reasons, <laughs> but I bet you I could make it work. Uh, and uh, and then, you know, the 
the underscoring the principle that every designer on here has talked about, which is just, hey, you have to make a lot of bad ideas and try them before you can actually get to any good ideas. So those are those are pretty universal and important principles and, and ways to get people started. Um, but I loved, you said, I got had to find out what my style was, right? Finding what your voice was as a designer. Uh, could you articulate what that is? Is that is that something that's conscious or what, what, how would you describe yourself as a designer? Yeah, well, I don't think at the beginning I really had a sense of this for quite a while. Um, and it's only something I think when game design became kind of work that I kind of paused to really consider um, in terms of a identity or a way I was different. Um, but I think I've kind of come to think of myself as like my style is um, accessibility at all costs or something like that. <laughs> or mm. or um, uh, uh, you talk about distillation uh, of ideas. And there's something about for me that I love, which is finding the, the core heartbeat of a mechanism or a, or a moment of play and just presenting that to the players as unadornedly as I can so that it's very easy to grab a hold of an experience. Um, that's sort of probably how I think of it. So one, my audience is almost everyone. Uh, the lowest barrier to entry to start playing as possible is something I'm really conscious of in my designs. And then also I feel like, yeah, this thing that's hard to explain, elegance, distillation of of just taking one really great idea and just saying, here it is with, without much else. Yeah, no, I love that. Yeah. The ele elegance is the word that I use, uh, when I, when I teach this principle and it's getting more play and experience from less things is the way I, I, I try to describe it, right. That, whether that be rules or components or whatever, like how do I, how much getting the most kind of value and, and joy or whatever emotion and, and experience you're looking for out of fewer and fewer things that you have to put in. Mm. Uh, and I think that, yeah, you, you, that is definitely something that has come through, uh, in my experience of your designs and it's very hard to do well. Um, <laughs> it's actually one of the, I think the key skills as a designer matures, um, that the, 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 you know, the tendency up front is always to want to add things. You know, people come pitch me. It's like, all right, well, I want to make like, like world of Warcraft, but like also with like halo and has all these other things. I was like, but it's like, a, it's like a board game. And I'm like, okay, let's, uh, let's pick one, one thing to start with. It's uh, funny, isn't it? Because in a lot of other areas, you start with simple things almost naturally. But I find that too, like, and it was true with me as well, that the impulse at the beginning is to make your magnum opus, you know, is to make the game with everything you've ever wanted in the game. It's it's strange, but it seems to be a natural step a lot of us go through. It's just I've got to get everything out there in the first game, um, do something epic. Uh, but that's actually a hard way to start, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, uh, I think, I think it's just... Uh, it's true in a lot of fields, right? You know, you want to start making movies. You can't make, you know, Terminator on your first go. You've got to, you know, maybe try a short film, you know, maybe try a, try yeah. writing a script first, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> um, and, uh, and I think it's, uh, it's, it's very, I think games have this illusion of like accessibility that they, like, you know, making a film you recognize is like so much going on. It's like, oh, I got to get all this stuff in this budget. They can't possibly do that. But a board game, it seems like, oh, it's just, you know, pieces of paper and writing on them and card, you know, tokens. Of course I could do that. And recognizing how much goes into the systems design behind it and how every one little piece interacts with everything else and how to manage all of that uh, is something that, that, that just comes from bashing your head against the wall a few times, I think. Yep, yep. 
Okay, so you toyed things around. We'll get back to the narrative here. Uh, you were toying around with ideas. You started to find your voice a little bit. And then what? What? where does this transition into uh, now this is a real career path or what's the first kind of strike that you made at that? Well, <clears throat> well, about six months probably into just, you know, um, thinking about game design as a little bit of a hobby on the side, purely for fun, I started to really think, oh, I should... I'd love to get these games out into the world. Um, and my initial response, so this was 2005, six, seven. So it's like way before Kickstarter, way before um, production facilities had amazing websites. Anyone could get quotes on, you know, it was like way before some of these things felt achievable for one person to just go make a game. So I thought, okay, I could start something really small, self-produce and self-publish, just small print runs and just sort of see what happens. Um, so I tried to figure out um, how I could make games myself. So I started making kind of 50 or 100 um, copy print runs of my own stuff and taking them to just little local conventions and selling them online. And, um, man, that was a a great learning process because oh my god i can only imagine so i yeah i want to dig into this a little bit more because that's that's as you mentioned like nowadays that's way easier to do than it ever was before and it's still very challenging and intimidating right you can go to you know we had the the ceo of the game crafter on the the podcast a little while ago and you know that it's like you know point and click you can build build a game and have it shipped to you for relatively relatively reasonable cost for low, low runs but it's still very difficult and, and challenging how did you get to that point how did you 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 called a manufacturer you just like how like to walk me through a little bit of the story of you going from <laughs> yeah i'm gonna totally do this to you actually have games to sell yeah well i mean looking back on it it was a bit of a kind of wild and crazy thing to try but i think i knew <clears throat> so in, in australia i'm also in australia so not near any of the major board game producing centers. Um, and I think I knew I didn't have any money uh, at all to invest in this. So I think I just knew it was going to be a very handmade process. So my first game, Archaeology, I literally, you know, got a business card printer to print out cards. I made the boxes myself. You know, we're talking that level of wow homemade stuff. And when you're only doing 50 copies you kind of go, oh, well, this is, you know, painstaking, but it's only 50 copies, so I can do it. And that's how I started. Um, and so, yeah, the first game I did was the, the first version of Archaeology I made had a board and tokens and all these things, and it almost killed me, you know, actually making the the game because there was, was just a lot of work. But, you know, I sold them all and I got, you know, mixed feedback, but I got some good and bad feedback, some encouraging feedback. And so I thought I've got to keep going. But the very next thing I did was go, okay, what's the absolute simplest physical form? <laughs> so I don't right. spend, you know, uh, 10 hours making each copy. So then I just distilled that original design into Archaeology, the card game, which was just cards. So right. All I was doing then was just getting business cards printed and then putting them in a box. So, um, yeah, bit of a bit of a crazy thing, which seems so weird now because, yeah, if, if the game crafter only existed, oh, but um, but yeah, that's just that's just the path I figured out for me, um, and it kind of 
got the good thing about it was it really quickly got me out there. So it, even my very a couple of my very earliest ideas were getting played by strangers around the world, and they were writing little reviews and stuff. And that was a really quick like learning curve. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I mean, like the very least, like the process, I really, I'm grateful for, you know, I mean, now I, I, I run a game company, but even from going from a designer and I, I shifted to being a product manager for a while, uh, when I was doing the world of Warcraft miniatures game and it was just like really, really forced me to care about components and pricing and figuring out how you build things and, you know, just much every, everything that now is really helpful as a designer to think through if you're going to you know pitch a game it was just a box with cards in it that's one scale of game and what you're able to do and if it's got to have you know pre-painted plastic miniatures is a whole different scale you got to be dealing with uh and so uh you got to learn that lesson with (laughs) actually blood sweat and tears of actually cutting and putting everything together yourself that's that's really cool yeah yeah Um, literally if i do it this way it'll take you know 10 more hours okay i won't do it that way um yeah yeah and, well, yeah. and, and again, I just I love I love these stories because it's just like there's so many people out there for whom this is a a pipe dream, right? This is like, oh, I could never do this. And you had you had no money. You were you were trapped on an island. You had you had to make everything yourself, and uh, and you were able to do it and get and again, even that game was not quote unquote successful, but it was a great. You had enough of the feedback, and you were able to learn from that and then grow from there. So it, it's just it's it's just a wonderful story. So. Um, Okay, so you're you're making things yourself. You've 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 learned to streamline. You're continuing to build that. This is like 2007 ish. What uh, what what happens next? So I took, um, I think a hundred copies of Archaeology, the card game, to a convention, which was at the time sort of the biggest convention we had, and here, and it was still quite small. And for some, you know, wild reason. Uh, Zev from Z-Man Games um, decided to fly all the way over and and have a booth. I think it was pretty much the only international kind of booth there. And I loved, you know, some of what he'd already been doing and so I was like a bit starstruck. But um, he was going through the phase where he was picking up lots of cool little card games from Japan and other places. And so um, I played the game with him um at this convention and he signed it and um that was pretty amazing feeling like that was um (laughs) that was like a really big moment because it felt like wow all the all the work in this first year has kind of led to actually you know a publisher you know discovering my game um so that meeting was very kind of serendipitous that he was there and that we were able to meet and um yeah, because at the time, I, I mean, I, I think I'd emailed a few publishers to try and say, hey, do you want to have a look at my game? And they were just like, well, we really do in-person meetings. You know, that's just how we work. So when you're around, we'll see you. And really until um, COVID happened, I found that was a lot of publishers just wanted to see pictures at conventions. That was really how they operated. So it's hard when you don't live near um, the big conventions. So that was a great moment. Um so yeah, Z-Man signed signed that. 
Yeah, that's amazing. I think it's, it's again, just to sort of tease out some principles here, right? Again, like yeah, going to conventions, certainly pre-pandemic, but frankly, still post-pandemic, I think is the best way for new designers to be able to get their stuff discovered, right? Being able to actually, because most publishers are at these, especially at the big shows, um, you know, Gen Con, Spiel Essen, and others that they will be there. And it's actually really, most of the time, they're very nice and they will find a way to make time for you at a show uh, mm-hmm. if you're also nice and uh you know have a have a good uh, you know pitch together that you can get your get your point across and so it's still i find the best way to go but yes right now there's a lot more opportunities to do remote pitches it's actually one of the things we we teach people in our course we do a virtual pitch day calling a bunch of publishers at the end of people that go through the think like games on our course and they're able to to pitch to a variety of different publishers and it's actually very efficient uh but still not as easy to gather uh, and get get people to pay attention to you when you're not in front of their face yeah, it's really, really different mode of pitching, but um, help has helped me out a lot in the last couple of years to be able to do that. Sure, sure. Do you have maybe any uh, interesting kind of tips or uh, advice for people, whether it comes to preparing and pitching in real life or uh, trying to, to, to do one of these remote pitches or get a publisher to pay attention to them remotely? Yeah. Um, well, I've been, it's been really interesting with the pandemic that a lot of, a few quite big publishers have had kind of quite open invites to like pitching days. And I think because they can just sort of set up um, conferencing and just go through people really quickly and efficiently, they're quite happy almost for, for whoever wants to pitch them to pitch them remotely. I think, so I've done it maybe half a dozen times, I would say during the last couple of years, uh, pitching, you know, a whole bunch of games all at once over zoom and I think something I learned pretty quick is um, to make a PowerPoint <laughs> um, as opposed to like tilt my laptop camera down so they can see the prototype. So I would take, you know, take photos of everything, make like a little mini PowerPoint presentation of the game's key points and then share my screen and present that, which sounds a bit formal, but I just think the alternative to just kind of, you know, trying to give them an impression of what's on your desk and (laughs) and then having your face kind of kneeling down behind it just didn't work the first couple of times I did it. So I found that that really helped and it's really different from pitching in person for that reason because it's like I'm not actually physically there. Um, Your eyes can't move around what I'm showing you. So I kind of moved to saying, okay, here's slide one and here's what I want you to know and here's some photos and here's a little video and that seems to have really been the way I've gone and seems the best uh, route for me to to just get the information across. Yep. Yep. I found uh, things like that. You know, I, I always advise people like have a, have a cell sheet or, you know, whatever, a couple sheets in, in, in a presentation with the key information you need. I, I will tell uh, people record like a, a one minute video, like a little highlight reel of the game. And you can show, so you can show what the physical thing is or, or do it in tabletop simulator is also really powerful for mm-hmm. a lot of people. You can actually play the game at least and see it. Certain types of games work better than others for that, but uh, different tools that are not just, yeah, tilting your camera at a board. Uh, I think it's a great, great advice. Uh, awesome. Um, okay. So you got your first game picked up. You're elated. You've been doing this for a year. Now you're a big success. You're now, you've got your game picked up. You're wealthy. You can retire from everything else. <laughs> That's how it works, right? <laughs> uh, not really. So yeah. Um, I, I didn't really have any illusions that, 
you know, getting one little card game picked up was going to be a huge money spinner, but it really wasn't. You know, it it sold through its first, you know, print run reasonably fine, but, you know, it's not a whole lot of money getting a little royalty from a small game. Um, so, no, nothing really changed in that way. Um, it was much more for me about just sort of the recognition of someone else saying, oh, your game's okay and I'm it's worth putting out. You know, that was just a big confidence boost. Um, so the next thing I did um, was sort of on the back of archaeology just being out, I decided to uh, go to Essen, so the big uh, game fair in Germany, and um, I thought, well, it's super expensive uh, to just fly over for a few days uh, to try and pitch my games in Germany. But, you know, that felt like the next way in, like the way to get in front of people. And so I just started emailing all the publishers I knew and sort of saying, would you be interested in a meeting? I've got this one published game. I'm coming over from Australia. And I thought no one would respond pretty much, but pretty much everyone was like, sure. <laughs> and I was like, what is this industry? Um, but I was really surprised um, how, how many publishers over there were just willing to have a meeting. So I took over like four or five designs and I just worked really hard and thought this is the moment I've got to, you know, um, buy a plane ticket and just go over and, and pitch. And that's kind of what I did. That was like my next kind of step trying to get into uh, something a bit more serious. Great. Yeah. And I, and I just, I want to reemphasize this, like kind of, you know, you, you, you sort of made this point. It's like, you know, it wasn't really about the money of that first picture, but it was about that, that, that extra confidence, the, the, the validation that, Hey, you know, I've got something here and I can go forward. And I, I don't want to, you know, undersell how important that is. Right. And it may be that for people out there, they don't get a publisher to pick up their game in the first year. That's actually quite rare, but the ability to find a way to sustain your momentum to get feedback from people that you trust or from people you know outside in the industry or people that you can get to play test your games to give you that opportunity to grow and to be able to give you those little boosts here and there to be able to get little wins along the way really helps because there's just a lot of i don't know, you know sort of I, I call it sort of being in the dark forest uh when you're doing creative work right you just kind of don't know you're you're struggling the game's not coming together it's a lot of hard work to find your way out and get to the something that's good and so having those little bits of of confidence um that and finding ways to get that positive feedback when you can uh is really really critical yeah totally for sure uh, okay, so you're at Essen, and your you, what's your your plan at Essen is to just kind of you did you make appointments ahead of time? Were you just walking the floor? Did you have a booth space? What was the, what was the yeah? What so was the I had a I booked appointments ahead of time. So I just it was I think I had around ten and uh, booked them all in to as few days as I could. <laughs> um, and <clears throat> and well, first of all, just completely wowed by Essen. So, yeah, I was just walking around blown away by how big it was and um, yeah. how vibrant everything was over there. I'm like, yeah, that was I want to really... ask about uh, about booking about booking things. So if somebody out there is like, hey, I want to go to this. I want to go to Essen. How did, you, how did you book these things? Did you just call people? Did you use their website forms? Was there some open call thing? If somebody wanted to just, hey, I've got games. I want to go to Essen. What do I do? Yeah, I literally just went to each publisher's website and found their contact email, you know, and just went for it and just asked. Um, I think a lot of publishers would have a slightly more formal process now where you would, um, 
have a digital calendar or something that they ask you to go through. Um, but that's literally all I did. And, um, most of the time I was just forwarded on to the right person and, and got a response. And as I said, quite amazed that, um, a relative unknown, well, an unknown person was, uh, allowed some meetings, but yeah, it, like you said, it's an interesting industry and in that people are just willing. I think if, if you're nice and you're respectful, people are just, most publishers are super willing to just meet new people, which is cool. Awesome. All right. So now you're there and you're overwhelmed by the massiveness of Essen. And I, yeah, I've, I, maybe you can share a little bit of what that feels like. Cause I've been to the show and it's, it's not easy to describe to people that haven't been there, how the scale of this thing. Yeah. So the convention we had here in Australia would be, you know, in a small kind of, it wasn't even in a big city and it was in a small convention center, you know, maybe like 50 booths around this, this hall. And then get to Essen and the first hole you walk into must be, you know, 20 times that size. And then there's like eight holes, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it's just, um, it's as big a event, as big a trade fair as you'll find that wall that I've been to. It's just massive. And what really struck me was not only the size, but that the people attending we're just like, it wasn't just a subcultural kind of gamer group or geeky group. It was just like German people, you know, with their kids or just other people from around Europe who just taken the train in. It was just like, yeah, it didn't feel like a subculture. It felt just like, oh, this is just people who've come because they love games. And that was, for me, that was almost the best thing about it. It was like, okay, this is niche to me but actually here it's much more mainstream and i think there was just something really nice and encouraging about being a part of that yeah it's wonderful it's it's very well said i had the exact same experience and then you see these giant halls on the main days of the show where they're just packed like you have to like sardines walking through um and just trying to see all these regular just regular people like you'd see on the street anywhere all just really excited to buy games and you know kind of uh, the the types of games that we love and so yeah it's really really fantastic and eye-opening experience Mm. uh so awesome so you're there you've got your 10 pre-scheduled meetings and how does how does that all go well, I, I sort of, you know, found my own way in terms of pitching. Like I didn't really know what to do, but I just kind of thought, well, I'll make it quick and snappy. <laughs> just started showing people my games, really. Um, so I met like a lot of publishers that I loved, like Ravensburger and Cosmos and Repos and all these publishers I was playing their games. And I was, you know, super nervous and... I just would go through and show them my four or five games and they generally say, okay, just show me those two. They seem to suit us. And so I would show them those one or two games. And out of all of those meetings, I think only about three publishers were interested enough to take a prototype. Um, but I still saw that as, like for me, that was a real win. Like I was would have been happy with one. So getting two or three was pretty great. And so I left prototypes with them and um, kind of just waited and just was yeah, really excited to see what would happen next. Cool. Okay. So then uh, you worked your way through there. You got some reasonable feedback. Um, how did things proceed from there? 
Well, none of those games got picked up. So, um, <laughs> but I got really good feedback. So, um, and also like started relationships. So there were people I met then that I still talk to, you know, which is pretty cool. So just being seen and known and getting to know um, people you click with at different publishers is is really good. So that w- that was something I think I really took away from that. But also, yeah, all of the games that got rejected were I got feedback. Like I got a letter with feedback in it, and um, I've just found that really useful. And you know, it kind of obviously any rejection hurts a little bit. But at the same time, I think I was just trying to have an approach of, well, I'm still new, I'm still learning, and um, if the game's not good enough, the game's not good enough. So, you know, be honest and I'll, I'll, I'll try and, and I'll try and improve. So, I yeah, so it's some disappointment, but also, like, as I said, like I think a lot of gains in terms of just experience, relationships. Um, so when I got back, I kept kind of working on those designs and also kept kind of thinking about self-publishing. So within a few years, I had a few more kind of little self-published projects happening. So I was still getting games out that way. Um, and really I was just looking for whatever opportunities would pop up to get different ideas, either self-published or in front of publishers when I could. So you're both parallel processing publishing on your own and your uh building and your pitching as you go along the way so that's a good fair amount of stuff and you have you have another job during this time is this you're doing this full time just curious how that how that uh yeah i did have a job so for most of this time i had a job and this was just a hobby um and yeah i mean my productivity wasn't super high for for that reason you know so you know we're talking one self-published game a year kind of thing and the odd um, kind of trip or attempt to, you know, click connect with a publisher. So, yeah, it wasn't like a, a hugely productive time, but it was like a slow build. Um, and, yeah, over time I became slightly more well-known and we'll get the odd email from a publisher. You know, you're just slowly building a presence, I, I guess, is how I look back on it. Yeah, no, it's great. I mean, this is like in many ways you're, you're you've you've lived the classic grind, right? It's a classic process for people where you're you know in doing a little bit more than most. I think when it comes to actively <laughs> building your own games to sell uh, with your own hands, but uh, I think that that's a it's you know it's over time give put stuff out there, get feedback, try not to take it personally, get your ego out of the way, build relationships, learn, iterate, come back to it, see what sticks keep doing that process and don't uh you know that's 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 it this is that's the cl- as classic a recipe as i've been able to find talking about <laughs> you know dozens and dozens and dozens of designers yeah yep um and it's funny like at this point i was really disconnected from other designers so like <laughs> i hadn't met many i didn't really know how to meet them um and so yeah, I, I was a bit of a lone ranger in a way, figuring a lot of this stuff out. And uh, everything sped up once I got to become friends with other designers around the world like and became sort of peers a little bit more because then you have access to all of their experience and knowledge and wisdom and um, that was a real moment of things just speeding up for me, yeah. 
yeah, being able to surround yourself with other uh, smart people that can uh, challenge you and give feedback is is critical. Just any any it doesn't have to be super famous designers, just like anybody else. It's like sort of on the craft, and you can kind of bounce things back and forth. Makes it yeah. makes a huge difference. Um, cool. Well, I I so I I want to because uh, I was, I'm, I want to make sure I have enough time to talk through these things. So when I really want to you know fast forward a little bit towards uh, uh, the well um, sushi go in particular because it's the thing i'm the biggest fan of what uh so what uh, how did that game development start where did that one come from i'm really uh very curious because it's uh it's really just a, a, a fascinating and well done well done design oh thanks uh well so yeah sushi go was probably about four or five years into this whole process um i was looking for the next little card game I would self-produce and and self-publish. And uh, crowdfunding had happened. So I think crowdfunding had just happened. So I was kind of aware that that was on my radar. Um, and But I wanted the next little card game that I could quite cheaply make. Um, but this one was going to be in a factory. So by now I'd kind of decided I'd get it produced uh, properly in a factory. Um, so I wanted this one to be really, you know, the best game I could make um, to just put money in into and try and have a real go at self-publishing. And since archaeology, I had made dozens of, like, failed little prototypes for the next kind of set collection card game that I wanted to do and nothing was clicking, nothing was working. Um, and then Seven Wonders came out um, and I'd also been a fan of Fairy Tale. Uh, but Seven Wonders in particular came out and the, the the kind of past drafting was just so instantly enjoyable <laughs> that I was like, oh, this is, I, I just love the mechanism. But the thing about Seven Wonders was I, I, I love the game and I still do, but I found it quite a hard teach. So I've always mostly played games with other pretty casual gamers and I found Seven Wonders was often just like the eyes glazing over moment during the teach happened because there's a lot of icons and you got to kind of preempt the different eras and it takes a while to teach and so i was instantly thinking i want kind of this experience but i want it just i just want to play a game that's really just the drafting and not much else so i started toying around with that idea and I sort of had, as I said, five years of failed set collection mechanisms uh, in my brain. So quite quickly I came up with ideas for the cards um, that would make like set collection rules that would really be fun in the context of past drafting. And so quite quickly I just threw a bunch of them into a deck and started testing it and quite quickly the, the game kind of clicked. So it only took a few months to get from that point to this is ready to produce, which was pretty quick. Um, well, so you went through a few different mechanisms that didn't work as far as the, you know, cause I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of drafting games. I got hooked on it from my days playing magic and drafting that, but it's like the, the depth of drafting comes from these sort of differential values between players and, you know, this whole context of it being able to evaluate the cards based on what, you know what else has come before and what you're reading from what's been coming from others and so you know there's a building that complexity in a way that's simple 
is 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 deceptively hard. And so I'm curious were there were there what what were there specific other ideas or things that you tried that um, that that didn't pan out that you can recall? I think the biggest thing was like how many different types of cards are there? And how many of each card are there? And I know that sounds like super simple, but actually that was one of the biggest um, things to get right because you need to be aware of what the possibilities are, but not there can't be too many because then you're just going to glaze over and think, well, whatever I get in my hand, I'll get and I'll see what happens. Like you need to be aware of what's out there, but um, able to kind of, visualize the play space pretty easily so getting the number of different things was sort of the biggest thing and then trying to make each one feel different so um tempura doesn't give you many points but it's not that risky sashimi gives you more points but it's really risky um marquee rolls are about trying to beat someone someone's number of marquee rolls at the table that round. So trying to make each type of card have a simple but different um, point scoring rule that evoked a slightly different emotion. So I don't know if there are many that interesting ideas that didn't make it in. There's like I can think of, I tried for a while like a, a super dumpling so <laughs> dumplings are triangular scoring, uh, one, three, six, 10, 15 for one, two, three, four, five dumplings. So I think I tried like a more powerful dumpling that took longer to ramp up the points. Um, I'm, I tried like 10 or 20 different variations of the sushi rolls to get the scoring right on that. Um, but mostly it was about just honing in, like what's the, what's the right amount of cards um, for this deck to make it just yeah. click. Yeah, it's great. So it's like, you know, just again, just kind of bounce around some principles here. So there's, you know, in a, you know making a, enough different types of things available in the draft that you feel the variety, but it's few enough that you can sort of comprehend, you know, the scope of what's going on and plan to, you know, look for specific things and, and, and try for specific things in a draft. And then to have what it sounds like the main axes here is varying degrees of risk reward kind of payoff structures that create different drama cycles for players depending upon where they are like oh man i really need to get the third copy of this or only if they you know i just just need to make sure i have more than them so as long as i'm i'm far ahead i can dissuade them and you know different aspects of like that people can opt into depending upon the strategy so their emotional arc will be very different each time they play depending upon which you know which pieces they're going for yeah exactly yeah and and getting that to click was mostly trial and error during testing you know like uh it's a hard thing to quantify but when it worked when it was working it was just working you know it was one of those games where it just got in the groove and you're like okay this is the right number of cards yeah <laughs> this is right yeah yeah well it's one of the things i love about like testing simple card games that have quick play times because your iterations can be so fast right that's where you can make games so much faster than a traditional cycle because it's like okay nope just replay that okay just cross that one number out on that card let's try it as a you know three for every one or whatever and then call again and so you can really make tons of progress very quickly which is just wonderful yeah uh, I, that's that's one of the things that attracts me to simple and quick games is that um that cycle is so quick and so you can feel progress um 
And I think a lot of designers can relate to when you're not feeling progress on a design, it just stagnates and you feel pretty terrible. <laughs> so I yeah. love short games. That's one of the reasons I think. And so you started with the the mechanic was the core inspiration. Like you saw Seven Wonders, and you're like, okay, I want this game, but a little bit of a lot, you know, easier teach. And the sushi, you brainstorm different ways to, you know, what you pass around a table and collect. And the the sushi conveyor belts came came to mind relatively quickly, and that kind of fed the process as you went through it. The the theme and mechanics kind of stayed relatively stable the whole time. Oh yeah. So one of the first ideas i just asked myself what's something that goes around the table <laughs> i remember thinking for the, when i was theming it like what goes around a table and i thought well i must have just eaten sushi and i thought oh a sushi conveyor belt and it just as that just felt like one of those really natural thematic clicks and i just went yep that works and so that never changed and i think actually helps the game quite a bit because it's just such a simple little metaphor everybody gets Yes. No, that's, that's, that's the other thing I, I want to brought it up because it's just like, it's so wonderful when you can make those things click and the, the theme just carries the mechanics and, you know, and makes it just much, people can just grok it so much easier than, you know, I mean, Seven Wonders, like, again, also love the game, but the, you know, the abstractness of like this, this particular building leads into this particular building and has this thing and this icon here is like, who, who I, I, that's just, is all jargoning you know, just made up as far as I could tell. Maybe there's a story there that if you know the history, but it's like very uh, opaque to most people. Whereas, mm. oh yeah, of course I want these these pieces of sushi go well together. And I want a piece of wasabi on my fish, but not by itself or, you know, whatever. Like there's a lot of interesting automatic things that come with it, which is great. Mm. So you're, you're in a, uh, so you were, you were deciding to do this, um, via Kickstarter as kind of a new field. You already have experience producing things. You've chosen to produce something that's relatively simple. You have some notoriety and some audience, uh, and you've, did you have a specific strategy around kind of marketing and pushing it out there? Like, again, you've done, you're doing everything kind of as close to by the book as I can, uh, I can think of, right. You're building slowly over the audience, building your experience with stuff, you know, creating a lower risk type, uh, product for this type of, uh, for, for being able to fund and launch yourself. All great tips for people that the default is usually not to do those things. Um, but, uh, what, uh, did you, what about, you know, the marketing and trying to, trying to crowdfund? That's a, that's a big, a big hurdle for a lot of people. Yeah. Well, this is when crowdfunding was pretty new. Um, so as Kickstarter wasn't kind of open to Australia even, so I used Indiegogo, which was. And there wasn't anything really out there about, or well, not much anyway, about Kickstarter strategy and marketing. So it was all pretty new. So I just thought, well, I'll just put it up and I'll buy some ads on BoardGameGeek because I knew that that was one way you could advertise your game. Um, so, yeah, I didn't need that much money for the print run to succeed. I think it was $5,000 was the the goal and um i think i got almost eight thousand so you know it funded but it wasn't a runaway hit by any means but it was like okay cool that's what i needed but yeah it was really just a little bit of word of mouth and a, a, a small ad buy on board game geek that was it really um and it was just enough to get the print run made and so i got the print run made and um by this time i had a had a bit of a relationship with distrib I had like one sort of distribution relationship in the States. And so I just sent them a few cases and just 
kind of waited to see what would happen, really. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. And uh and then it uh got uh got picked up uh by game right after that they they found it and, and published it or how did that how did that go, yeah come so about? it was selling like well for for me like the distributor was like oh yeah this is going pretty good pretty well send more send more so I was like oh great so i was aware it was selling <clears throat> okay but we're talking i think the the, the print run was three thousand and it sold through that in maybe you know six months and towards the end of that game right just emailed me and Jason from Game Run was like, oh, is that a game night? Someone pulled out Sushi Go and it's a perfect fit for us. Would you be willing to license it to us? And um, similar to the experience with Z-Man, that was a moment of like, yes, like I definitely would. And I was really glad. Uh, I mean, obviously super fortunate and blessed that it happened to fall into Jason's hands. Like that's something you can't plan for. But um super glad that he clicked with what I was trying to do because a lot of the time during Sushi Go, I was literally thinking to myself, how would Game Right make this, you know? Yeah. Uh, because <clears throat> I liked a lot of their little card games um, like Loot and Kaching and little card games they used to put out. And I just thought, oh, what would Game Right do to make this really accessible to to kids to play as well? And so yeah, when they clicked with the design aesthetic of it, I was I was pretty chuffed. So I, I want to just like walk through the decision thought process. So it sounds like this is like no brainer, snap call, yes. But um, you know, I had I had an interesting similar decision when I when I first released Ascension. I had you know my first company self publishing opportunity, and then you know we start start selling kind of well and then i get called from fantasy fight games who wants to buy you know wants to license the game and buy oh really it and run with it yeah i didn't know that and, uh, yeah well i not i don't know if i ever even talked about it before actually uh so maybe nobody knows uh but uh <laughs> the and i had that that moment where i had to make this decision like do i just like license it to them and let them run with the ball and i you know just kind of stay as a game designer or do i keep using this and and publishing it and use it as a platform to build build my own publishing company and i remember being you know it was a very tough decision at the time and i obviously ended up deciding to keep it and and run with it and that worked out pretty well but it was not easy and it was a large trade-off either way and so i'm curious did that did it cross your mind to say no you know what i think i got a hit here i'm gonna run with it or was it just this was your this was a home run from you know no 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 questions asked um I think self-publishing to me was much more a means to an ends of getting my games out. I I think I always wanted to be a designer, not really a publisher, um, at least back then. And it was just a way uh, for me to get my games out. So it wasn't a very hard decision um, at all. <laughs> and just because I was so, I was such a big game right fan that I thought, no, this is sort of, this is, exactly what I'd sort of hoped for the game in a way. Um, I can totally see why your decision was much more complicated because, I mean, I played the first edition of Ascension and you could just tell that there was an aesthetic and a and a personality behind your brand even then that you were like, no, you want to do something with your brand. Um, 
So I can see why that is a much harder decision. But for me, my self-publishing wasn't really like that. It was just like, oh, I'm just trying to get my stuff out there. Yeah. <laughs> and I was quite happy when the time came that I could stop doing that and just design. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's a, you know, I, I like to highlight this, this element to it because it really is a huge, huge difference. I mean, the, the many times the majority of my day is not spent working on games at all now, right? It's running a company and trying to manage all these different aspects of getting things done that, you know, is if your goal is to make games, publishing them yourself is, is a, is a heavy lifting way to do it. It's got a lot of upsides too, right? You know, obviously you get more control of the thing. You can create whatever you want. You could do a lot of different stuff, uh, but it's it's a it's a lot to take on and a lot of challenges that come with it as opposed to licensing a game where you're going to make, you know, not as much money per unit you sell, but you also have none of the risk and overhead and you could spend most of your time on design, the process of design. So I think it's a very personality uh, driven choice, but I just really like to highlight those those moments and those decisions, and and really it's helpful just knowing what it is that you want, because um, it's very easy to fall into a trap either way, uh, and just sort of do what you think you're supposed to do, and and it's really uh, putting the thought into like what do you want your day to day to be like, what's the long term goal, where do you want to be is is a really helpful way to frame things. It sounds like you've had that from the beginning, and we're willing to do as much hard work as it took to get there, which is I think one of the real uh, admirable uh, traits you have that, that that seems to have been key to your success. Yeah, yeah. It was a lot of work and it took really from like when I very first started to when I was like essentially a game designer, that was my main income. It was almost 10 years, you know, really, if wow. you do the whole cycle. So it was a slow build um, with like lots of peaks and troughs along the way, but um, Sushi Go getting signed by Game Right was one of those big things that enabled that. Because um, as that grew in popularity, it sort of became my reliable royalties that you could kind of bank on getting each quarter. And so that was a big stepping stone to be able to say, okay, I can now take two days a week or whatever it is and slowly build my design career. Um, but yeah, it was a slow build, um, all things considered. Yeah, no, it's great. And that's where, again, just another one of those messages for people that are out there, like it can take a long time and it can take, it can be a challenge, but you can make it happen with that persistence, which is exactly here. 10 years, 10 years to build a, to get to the point where you can do this full time is a, is a, is a serious commitment. And it's funny because when you think about it from the beginning, where it's like, Hey, I'm one year in, you're one year in, you licensed a game. You're like, that's why I was joking. Oh, that's it. Right. You made it. And no, it's <laughs> yeah. actually a very, very long process from there. Even when you, you know, have this kind of early success. So um yeah really great great to hear the story um i oh got i'm already feel like i'm running too short on time i really want to talk about gizmos so if that's all right i'm going to fast forward a little bit to that one sure. um because i love i love that game i think the engine building genre is another one that i'm you know not 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 easy to do well i think a lot of people don't uh and uh and there's and, and i would love to hear that that origin story for that game and the kind of process for building it sure so <clears throat> sort of similar in a way for gizmos and sushi go so i loved san juan and race for the galaxy uh still do and really loved how they created this huge sense of of building and growth and creating an engine with just a tableau of cards 
that was yeah something I really love about both those designs that I still really I still play them and uh, still really love that. Um, and from when I first played Race of the Galaxy, I was like, wow, I'd love to see uh, like a civilization style game, but just using a tableau like this. Like that was just it just felt really natural that that would be something you try and do with this kind of format. So that was an, a, a design idea I've been, I was toying with for ages, just mostly in my notebooks. I would always be jotting down ideas for that game and trying different things. And so many things just didn't work. Um, anyway, in about 2016 or so, I kind of thought I'm going to have another crack at that idea. And I started building this civilization tableau game. And um, the buildings you built had different powers. And um, I really quickly discovered that the ones that were super fun and the ones that I always wanted to build were the ones that gave you a sort of a passive power, like when this happens, do this. You know, when you do this, get this as well. And they just felt so inherently fun. At some point, I was just like, okay, that's the game. That's all, all the buildings are that. So I, like, stripped out all the other buildings more or less. And it just became about those sort of triggering powers. Um, and so it was still just a little card game. And it was, oh, I swapped the theme to be about inventions because it felt like I was building a machine rather than a, a civilization. Um and it was just this little card game. Uh, there were no marbles or anything like that. <laughs> and um, I took it to a convention. And um, hap- this is where Eric Lang was there, and he was working for Simon, and he asked if I had any games. And I played it with him. And I don't know if you've ever played a game with him, but... <laughs> Um, it's quite the experience. And about have, five minutes yes. in, I was like, are you even paying attention anymore to my game? And and um, he just seemed a bit off with the fairies. And, and what I know he was doing now was he was basically imagining gizmos as it is now with the marble dispenser and all the bells and whistles. So he really clicked with the game but instantly said, I want to turn this into something with a table presence that kind of matches the the quirky engine building feel. Um, so that kind of had this whole other development pathway after that with him. Um, but that's how it started, just like a really simple approach to a tableau building game with special powers. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, again, just kind of pulling out principles. I love that there's a, you know, we all have these games that we have in our notebooks that we have, you know, I have, I have just have a list of a hundred of them now give or take that it's little fragments or engines or themes or things I've tried to build, but haven't quite gotten there. And it'll circle back every now and then uh, with, you know, new experience. And often it's that, that little theme shift can unlock everything. Um, the game uh, ringmaster I released uh, a couple years ago is, was a game I've been trying to do forever. Kind of my like take on a, on a flux as simple as possible kind of, trading card game like experience where the rules are there but it was more you know slightly more you know permanency and and triggering powers like like you have but it was couldn't do it couldn't do it couldn't do it finally circus theme showed up and it was like everything clicked and i finished the game in like three months and so it was just like these you never know which which marrying principles will get you there and and then you also really were able to dial in mechanically on just okay wait where's the fun here 
Like, there's tons of different things I can do, all this tableau building, all these things. Oh, actually, this like little triggered mechanisms. That's where I'm having the most fun. So that's now what the game's all going to be about. And once you know kind of what that, what I, what I call the core tension or the sort of core like expi- excitement experience, you can, you know, the job as a designer is to just clear everything away that's not that and build only things that help enhance that particular, you know, fun or tension or uh, element of the game, uh, which it, it comes across. Uh, I, I'd love to hear a little bit more about some of the, that transition point and how working with Eric uh, and, and the Simon team to transform what was a card game into a components based game. And there's a lot of really like clever things, right? Especially when you have a game where, a triggers B triggers C. You can create a lot of awkward loops, and it can feel very um, bookkeeping-y, right? To mm. have to do all the stuff. And you guys, you, you you built a lot into the game that that really helps to mitigate that and manage that. I'd love maybe you can talk a little bit about that because I think that's a there's a lot of really important and lessons in there. Yeah. So I think the first thing that really um, helped the the overload of um, I've got too many powers, I don't know how to keep track of them in my head, that kind of feeling, was when I figured out that the um, all of the cards, all of their powers can be categorized by which action they enhance and then having a player board which has those actions and then columns of cards under those actions. Again, sounds quite simple now, but when that change happened... It was like, oh, okay, well, every time I pick a marble, I just look at that column and see what else I can do. And as soon as we categorize the cards that way, um, it really helped just dial in all the the little things that were happening and kind of gave us focus. So that was really important. Um, And then getting the icons right, like, you know, it's, it's a really hard game to get the iconography right for. And um, getting it right, so at a glance, without without any text, you can see what is available to you in your powers. That was really important as well. Um, and then the switch to using marbles as the resource instead of just cards. So originally, it just had a you know the, the the energy card. Energy was just cards that you kind of had a hand of. Switching to marbles in one way it was just a bit of a table presence gimmick, you know, like just a fun thing to play with. And I really like that it, the game has a fun tactile element, but it also really sped up the, the moment of taking energy. So if you think about ticket to ride, every time you take cards in ticket to ride, someone has to, you know, flip over new cards and, you know, you have to say if you're on from the deck or from the table and then the new cards come out. Like, it's a slightly annoying bookkeeping thing in Ticket to Ride. And it's why the app can be played in half the time because you don't have to do that. Um, So as soon as we swapped to marbles, that kind of went away. So you take an energy and the new one rolls down the ramp and it's there ready to be taken by the next person. Right, you let gravity solve the problem for you. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. And you put it in your little ring to store it and you can see what everybody has at a glance. So that kind of actually... um, sped up that kind of physical part of the game so they're kind of three of the things i remember helping the game to really work because there was a point where it could have gone much more down sort of a race for the galaxy complexity kind of level 
but Eric really wanted to dial it much more into a family game. So these things, I think, helped it get there. Yeah. No, it's great. I, I, I definitely, all that stuff comes through and just highlighting the importance of, you know, of graphic design and layout and positioning and table presence. You know, these are things that are critical to the success of a game and to its sort of grokability uh, that I think are often underappreciated by a lot of designers. And, uh, and, and, and Gizmos is a really great example that shows that. I mean, we had to wrestle with this a lot with uh, our upcoming game Soulforge Fusion, which I've, I've worked on with Richard Garfield. We, uh, you know, we took a game that was originally designed to be just played in digital where the cards leveled up as you played them. And then we made a physical version of it. And so then we had to manually level up the cards while you're playing it physically. And so figuring out how do you lay out the decks and the cards and how do you make the, the graphics super, super clear so you can grab things quickly and what, you, you know, even changing the turn structure so that your opponent can mm. play while you're grabbing your leveled up cards, like all kinds of little things about positioning and layout and graphics and structure that had to be modified to turn this sort of bookkeeping task that we knew we were taking on into something that wasn't burdensome and could, you know, be justified by the value you got out of the play um and so it was a very very conscious took long the longest time of this development process uh was probably getting trying to get all of that stuff right Mm -hmm. Uh, especially because a lot of it was happening during covid where we had to test remotely and you can't you know the physicality of it is what matters and so it was a very interesting uh challenge that i think a lot of people have to deal with now uh when you're trying to do you know virtual tabletop testing of some kind versus in-person testing and getting the physicality of like, you know, when you guys picked up your marbles and started <laughs> playing around with that, I can imagine was pretty entertaining when you're first trying to put that together as well. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, um, no, I totally hear you about tabletop simulator. Amazing tool. I, I made a game on it, uh, during, uh, COVID and, uh, a tile game and, only ever worked with it on tabletop simulator and the when this was a collaboration and when we got to the first physical prototype we realized it didn't work in the real world <laughs> like it did not like the physical sliding of tiles you had to do just didn't work with that many tiles of that size and i was just like what we made an app we didn't make a board game oh. <laughs> yep yep yeah, it's a it's a it's an important thing. That's where yeah, we use Tabletop Simulator, you know, all the time now as a tool. Or my team is one hundred percent distributed uh, now, but we make there are key checkpoints along the way. We're like, nope, we have to make a physical prototype here to validate this, and we have to be able to play these things here um, because there's no there's no substitute for that when you're you're trying to make something that people are you know the feel and touch and you know kind of ergonomics of the whole thing are mm. are really critical i uh <laughs> yeah i remember we had that even with the original version of ascension this i, I had no excuses I, I was only making this physically but there was originally like a conveyor belt mechanic on it that you would at the, at the end of the round you would slide all the cards to the right and the card on the right of the row would fall off to help you know stop the row from stalling and it had all these like positive values but the the, the pain in the butt of sliding that row of cards down and getting rid of it and people would forget and then would have to go back. It was like, just yeah. not worth it. And, and yeah, eventually yeah. somebody, one of my playtests was like, what if we just don't do that? <laughs> and it was like one of those head slapping moments. Like, Oh, I guess we could try that. It just like instantly better. It's like, okay, cool. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, yeah. I um recently heard uh, Emerson Matsushi saying that one of his design principles is that the players touch the components as few times as possible 
And I thought that was a really interesting thing to think about because normally you think, oh, no, I want my players to experience the physical pieces of the game and stuff. But I think he was talking about exactly this sort of moment where it's like, I don't want to have to slide five cards over and put a new card down every turn, you know. Um, right. There's that fiddly factor which you actually want to avoid. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's. I think it's. A, I think it's a great insight. It's like you know, there's 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 sort of positive forms of touching the components, like right? maybe having a you know having the cards in your hand or seeing the cool things or grabbing a new piece or resource or like Gizmo is a great example, right? Grabbing a a marble and putting it in your in your bin is like is kind of fun watching the thing roll down there's a there's a there's a play to it but the 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 way you had it before what was a row of cards that you were moving around or refilling that's not a fun form of you know the physicality is not a positive there so there's there's a real uh, a real distinction you know the the rolling a a fistful of dice can be a lot of fun unless it's too many dice for you to hold and processing it takes too long or you know the it, there 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 are some forms of physical interaction that are part of the joy and play itself hmm. and some that are just getting in the way and knowing the difference is really key. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yes. Oh, this has been, this has been so much fun. We are, uh, we are a bit short on time here. So I think we are going to, uh, have to have to wrap it up soon. I think, uh, I, I, I said, I, I started it this way. I'm going to end this way. I have, you know, I have so much respect for your, your design ethos and, and a lot of the really cool stuff that you have made. Um, what, if people want to find out more about you or maybe any other cool new projects you want to talk about, what, uh, how people, how people find cool things and learn more about the stuff you're doing. Yeah, well, I have a little website about myself, uh, which is just philwalkerharding.com, and I've written up little design notes about each of my games. So if you want to kind of hear a little more about the stories of some of my games, uh, you can check that out. Um, I guess the biggest new thing I'm doing is I've just launched, kind of going full circle in a way, (laughs) I'm publishing again. So um, me and my wife Meredith have just decided to launch a little publisher uh, called Joey Games. And our kind of aim is to make um, games for kids and adults to play together with Australian themes that aren't horribly cringeworthy. <laughs> so, uh, just, so I mean, are you showing? Are you throwing shrimp on any Barbies? <laughs> that yes, that will not be one of our games. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think Australians we have a really kind of fraught relationship to our own culture, uh, both because of like um, you know the the kind of tackiness that I guess we've presented ourselves with over the decades, but also our kind of incredibly uh, fraught history with our Indigenous people and our kind of colonial past is something that I think makes Australians, I don't know, it's a bit complicated sometimes for us. And we, I just wanted to think about putting games out into the world that were just like, I don't know, healthily, positively Australian like there's lots of beautiful amazing things about our country and our people and let's celebrate them a bit so um yeah so we're just we've just launched that um the website is joeygames.com.au and we really want to just kind of make a really positive uh brand um that helps kids and adults have a good experience around the table together so that's like this big whole new challenge for me going back into publishing and um, doing it at that scale. So we'll see how it goes, but sort of exciting to, to face a new, something new, something big. Oh, that's wonderful. And I, I really love that, you know, you're willing to kind of go back into this arena, which we, we even just talked about, like was not necessarily, 
the thing you wanted, right? Not to do to handle all the self-publishing, but that is because you're you're passionate about this cause and being able to sort of tell the story of your of your country and your people in a way that's healthy and connects kids and adults using the skill sets you have. So I, I think that's really wonderful. Uh, I'm glad uh, I'm glad to service that. It looks like I just went to the website where we're talking. It looks like you guys are doing some crowdfunding in the not too distant future. Yeah, uh, so we're launching with three games, uh, which you can read about on the website. So we'll have a have a crowdfunding campaign pretty soon, uh, and you can uh, order which ones you want. And um, hopefully it'll it'll go well. And um, yeah, it's exciting. It's exciting. It feels like being back at the beginning in a lot of ways. Uh, but I think because, and I'm sure you can relate to this, when it's your own vision and your own company uh, and you have a really strong sense of what you're trying to do, um, it can be really exciting. So that can help you get through the hard work stuff. <laughs> yes, that's really, that's what it's all about, right? You have to have a compelling vision to pull you through the inevitable challenges that come from trying to create something that hasn't existed before. That is at the heart of it. And so you've you've really shown uh, an incredible uh, propensity for that and work ethic and drive and commitment over the long term. And I'm excited to see this come. I've already signed up to be notified when your campaign goes live. So anybody else out there that wants to do this and sign up, joeygames.com.au. Uh, and uh, Phil, I, I would love to actually have you back once this stuff goes live and, and maybe talk a little bit more about it because I, I feel like I only uh, I only really got to scratch the surface here. So hopefully you can uh, come back and join us soon. I'd love to. That'd be great. Awesome. Well, then until next time. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you want to support the podcast, please rate, comment, and share on your favorite podcast platforms such as iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever device you're listening on. Listener reviews and shares make a huge difference and help us grow this community and will allow me to bring more amazing guests and insights to you. I've taken the insights from these interviews along with my 20 years of experience in the game industry and compressed it all into a book with the same title as this podcast, Think Like a Game Designer. In it, I give step-by-step instructions on how to apply the lessons from these great designers and bring your own games to life. If you think you might be interested, you can check out the book at thinklikeagamedesigner.com or wherever fine books are sold.